Drawn and Paneled is the comic book showcase podcast from Gen X Grown Up. Every Wednesday, we bring you news, reviews, interviews, insight, and commentary on the comic books we love from the golden age to the modern age. We love to hear from our podcast listeners, so write to us at podcast at drawnandpaneled.com. And if you enjoy what we do, please take a moment to support us by becoming one of our patrons at patreon.com slash genxgrownup. Welcome back, Drawn and Panel podcast listeners, to this, our back issue edition of our podcast. With me today, as always, is Jason. Hey, everybody. And our brand new co-host, John, is here as well. How are you doing, John? Hello, agents. <laughs> We're going subtle and undertone today. In this episode, we delve into the seedy underworld of everyone's favorite man about town with DC's first incarnation of the shadow. But first, Yay. listener email. And we have got some really cool email from Will B. Will says, I really enjoyed your look back at Batman year one. For my money, it's the best Batman story ever created. Frank Miller has never been better. And Dave Machucelli art is beautiful and understated. You can really see his influence in David Aja's art on the 2012 Hawkeye series for Marvel. That's pretty mm. cool. Thank you very much, yeah. Will. Thank you, Will. Yeah. So I haven't <laughs> read Batman Year One, but I did listen to the episode, the back issue about it. Right. And, uh, and so I, I can't say if it's the best Batman story, but probably it, it may be first or second. Maybe the, the best one might be the crossover between Batman and the Shadow that came out from Dynamite recently. Oh, I wonder gosh, why yeah. you would think that would be the best Batman story. <laughs> Story of all time. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about this book. Let me give you a quick synopsis. Although I know John, who has logged into our chat as Lamont, he, needs, <laughs> he doesn't need this synopsis. But for those of you listening out there, the shadow and his agents prevent an army of criminals from blowing up the George Washington Bridge, stealing a truckload of worn out currency and escaping in an experimental submarine. So you can tell this story is definitely more into the old, I don't know, like the old 40s and 50s. 50s era kind of stories, you know, with fighting crime and everything. It's not yeah, appropriately you know, enough. I mean, th that's yeah. the era that the shadow came out of. And, you know, I, I think it's great irony. And it's a bit of pandering that you actually selected this book since I recently <laughs> came on board, you know, and, and, and the great irony is that, you know, I'm kind of here as the guy who doesn't know much about comic books and you picked the one comic book that I know the most about. So. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there was a reason we figured we had to give you something to talk about. Right. Talk about. Issue. Otherwise, I'm like, I don't know anything about that. Right. Yeah. And it gives us a break from having to do so much work. We'll just let the new guy do it all. Oh my goodness. John has so many notes on this episode. I don't, I'm surprised his hand didn't fall off from writing everything down. Good Lord. Well, let's just go ahead and jump right into the episode, shall we? Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. <laughs> Hey there, Drawn and Panel podcast listener. I want to take just a second to tell you about something you didn't know you were missing. I'm John, and along with Mo, hey everybody, and George, hey, how's it going, guys? We are Gen X Grown Up. Gen X Grown Up is a website, YouTube channel, and audio podcast by and for Generation Xers, kids of the late 70s and early 80s who may have grown older but have refused to grow up. Every week on our podcast, we cover media, games, tech, toys, comics, games, and pop culture of yesterday and today through the eyes of guys who grew up loving that stuff. And every other week, we do a backtrack where we pick a single nostalgic topic from our youth and dig in deep. You can find us anywhere you listen to your podcasts or find us right on our website at genxgrownup.com. 
If you're a Generation Xer or know someone who is, I hope you'll check out Gen X Grown Up. Your dinner cannot just be french fries. Basically, life sucks as a grown up. Full disclosure now, if you're listening to this, however much you hear me talk about the shadow in this episode, <laughs> odds are I talked about three to four times as much as you hear and George had to, had to pare it down. By, by far, this character, not just this book, but this character is like the number one, uh, you know, kind of comic book, superhero-y, whatever kind of character in the universe for me. And which is why, of course, Jason and George were so kind to pick it. Uh, but yeah, so <laughs> yeah, now that I have yeah. interrupted the flow of your show, why I know. don't we get into talk? Talking about the creators of this particular shadow number one from DC. <laughs> and you know, it's oddly enough, you were talking about how much you've talked. I mean, you, the listener, this might be minute number four or five. We're actually in minute 700 of the recording. <laughs> I've just edited everything else down at this point. But the very first creator is the writer, Denny O'Neill. Uh, Denny O'Neill, I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there. He's got a lot of notable works Green Lantern, Arrow, Batman, right. of course, The Shadow. Right. Um, there's a Marvel test. Everybody know the Marvel test. I know. Jason does Lamont Cranston. Do you know, or John rather, whatever you're going by today. Uh, do you know what the Marvel test is for a writer? I have, I have no idea what the Marvel test is. They send you a, a blank page of fantastic four and you have to fill in the thought bubble. <laughs> <laughs> that's you the Marvel test. You don't have to draw it. You just have to write the thought Yeah, bubbles. it's already okay. drawn and you have to write dialogue to fill in for the scenes. And that's how they determine if you're a writer worth hiring or not. Oh, so this is a so, writer's test specifically. Exactly. Right. Ah, right. okay. Yeah. So Denny O'Neill, he somebody gives him this writer's test and he wasn't even going to do it. It was just sitting on his nightstand. He was writing for other things at the time, like newspapers and mm -hmm. magazines and stuff. He just took this test as a joke and they hired him. Like he wasn't really interested in writing for comics at all. When you said writer's test, the first thing I thought was like when you draw the turtle in the back of the comic book to send off to right. see if you can go to art school, but it's not that. Okay. Understood. I mean, it's a similar thing though, right? I mean, right. It's, it's just for artists, it's for writers, but yeah. yeah right. I, I uh, wish it, they had those tests when I was in high school, man. I would have passed with flying colors. I, I would have absolutely failed like I'm doing right now. I would have <laughs> failed that test in a heartbeat. The only one I would know is I'm supposed to put in clobbering time for the thing. Other than that, I really clobbering know time, what to right? Say. Yes. Yeah. If that was on the page, John would have been okay. Uh, <laughs> I think one of the most interesting parts is though he also worked on DC, and he had a little bit of controversy when he worked on Wonder Woman. He actually oh, yeah. stripped her of, her of all of her powers, so Wonder Woman had no power. She got kicked out of the Amazonian group and everything, and people lost their minds at that time about that. Can you imagine Wonder Woman not having powers and not being part of the Amazons? Isn't that just woman then? I mean, it's yeah, just, right. <laughs> <laughs> or it's wonder with a question mark, like wonder the what happened to wonder woman? <laughs> some lady. <laughs> yeah, she, she had no power. She was a spy and had like a white pantsuit. Did you? I didn't realize she had a white. I didn't see that. Oh, that's funny. That's classy. Welcome to the seventies. <laughs> right. And this guy won a ton of awards. He won a Shazam award, a Goth award, Inkpot. He was an honoree on the 50 who made DC great list. So this guy, you know, he's got some serious credentials, so it's no wonder why they picked him to write this first DC incarnation of the shadow. And to have this guy as a writer, as great as he may be, I, I, I will go on record probably several times in this podcast as saying this is not the strongest representation of what the character of the shadow is. And in a lot of ways, this is a this first DC uh, issue is kind of a an interpretation of a lot of what came out of like a merging of the radio shows and the pulps. So it seems to me that the writer more than anything. 
anything, he had to kind of kind of ingest and regurgitate, you know, 40 years of history into kind of a little book. So it's all it's not it's not original writing. It's more of like interpretive writing with an established character, which I don't know if that's if that's uh, constraining or freeing. I don't know which it is, but well, I think it depends here. on the writer. I mean, that happens all the time, though, right? Think about a guy when he first starts becoming the writer for Superman. That guy's got the same kind of longevity and mythos as the shadow does. Oh, I guess so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's just what he does with it. And maybe, you know, maybe with Superman, he's under even tighter constraints because that's no offense, John, that's a way more popular character than the shadow as far as the, you know, average American lexicon. But I, I think that it all depends on that writer and what they're trying to write in. I thought he did an okay job, but you are way more the shadow expert than I am. So I have to bow to you as far as whether or not this was good or not. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mike Kaluta was the artist on this book. His notable works, he has some interesting ones. He did album covers for Black Sabbath. Mm -hmm. I found one that he did that John's going to (laughs) love. Yeah. Would that be Alan Parsons Project? John, that's like one of your favorite all-time bands, right? It is. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you and know so, that cover? Uh, the Don't Answer Me cover? I don't know the song or the album or whatever. Yeah, the it is. single. You know? Yeah, it was actually the the music video was based on the uh, cover art for the single, which was kind of like a uh, like a noir. What's the like Dick Tracy, like the dot shaded, very comic booky kind of cover. Well, that kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's what it he's doing does. here with this, right? Yeah, yeah. I had no idea Kaluta did it, but uh, <laughs> when I saw that in your notes, I was like, really? <laughs> he also did covers for, you know, Action Comics, Batman, the Spirit, and of course, The Shadow. Well, yeah. I I mean, that's what we've got him on the list for is yeah. the shadow. But you can see there's definitely um, a feel to his his style. Oh, that yeah, absolutely. Is why they picked him for the shadow, I'm sure. He had a ton of awards, uh, Shazam Award again, an Inkpot Award. He also won something called the Spectrum Award for Grandmaster. Huh. I don't know a whole lot about that, but you know, it sounds, sounds impressive to me, at least. It sounds pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> now, before you, before you leave Mike Kaluta, I have to tell you that he has a long history with the shadow. And, I, and you, okay. you feel free to edit the hell out of me. <laughs> I, I know in your back issue, you're talking about one book, but I don't know how many times you're going to let me talk about the shadow. So I got to really latch on to this opportunity. <laughs> but, 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 but Mike Kaluta didn't just do this. I mean, he did some stuff with DC, obviously, in this first one. But then um, when DC lost the license, that was in the 70s, when they lost the license in the early mid 80s, I think Dark Horse tried to acquire the license and they did mm-hmm. a graphic novel called Hitler's Astrologer, which might be one of the best shadow kind of so that was a shadow books. story called Hitler's Astrologer. Was That's the right. Shadow Hitler's yeah. Astrologer, or yeah, no, 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 no. It, it was the, okay. the name of the story was Hitler's Astrologer. <laughs> I thought maybe the Shadow took on a new job or something. He left New York. No, and, no, no. Oh, well, you know Hitler needs a hand. I'm going to go tell his astrological signs for him. Give him his. No, no, he's not reading tarot his cards for Hitler. Fortune. No, no, no. The Third Reich doesn't need anybody to read the tarot cards for them. But, <laughs> but Kaluta did the the art for that Dark Horse thing, and then later Dark course did finally acquire the long-term rights in the early to mid 90s and Kaluta again was doing the shadow for that so so he just kept getting brought back time after time for the yeah, shadow all through stuff. the late 20th century Kaluta was the, the he was the the artist that depicted the shadow and kind of made people I think that influenced the next DC series and what Dynamite does now kind of the look and feel is I'm sure based on what Kaluta did in this uh, these DC books now there was a colorist on this Jeremy Serpe 
he's a really interesting guy. He was the primary overseer for DC's interior colors on their entire comic book line from 1950 until the 1970s. Wow, that's a so long time. Years. When you say yeah. interior colors, you mean like everything but the cover? Is that what that means? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, color, okay, right. the covers were usually done by specific artists and they did the art and the color and everything. That's how a cover gets done. Uh-huh, the one guy it. does the whole thing. But the I'm interior learning. colors, See, it's usually like the line art guy, the tracer, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> inker. <laughs> the inker, the tracer, it's all the same. That's right. <laughs> and then there's a group of people who come by and they do the color for the different pages. And there's, you know, put yellow here, put red on this guy's shirt, that kind of make this tree green with a little bit of brown. So this guy, he was like their supervisor for all the colorers for every DC comic from the 50s to the 70s. Can you imagine having to manage that kind of a workflow every single month? Because how many titles did they have during that time? They had to have 20 or 30 different books going at any one time. Oh, yeah. He's got to oversee every single item on every single page. I would think that he would maybe have a couple people under him that would maybe carry some of the weight, but uh, probably yeah, I'm but, sure. Yeah. But you know, those guys too, it was, this was back in the 50s, 70s. So they did work really hard mm-hmm. in those offices. So I'm well, sure he was he the was, overseer. He might've had like an undersecretary of orange just for those. There's a lot of red. I need an assistant just for red, please. I have a John is a comic book noob. Explain this to me question. Mm-hmm. Patent pending. All right. So if, if this overseer for colors does the work on this shadow comic, is that a testament that they wanted their top man to do it? Or is that a, we don't have anybody who can do this. So let's just have the supervisor do it kind of thing. Now, I would think it was more of a testament to, we oh, okay. want somebody important doing this because in my opinion, the people that they threw at this, you know, we talked about the awards for uh, Denny O'Neill and Mike Kaluta. Those were top guys in the industry at that time working at DC. They obviously wanted this series to be a success. My guess is they wanted it to be as good or as successful as Batman because Batman was the detective, obviously, for DC Comics and still is. Mm-hmm. But I think they wanted to try and bring a new title because they needed to diversify a little bit. OK, good, good. They threw all the heavy hitters at it. I want to make sure it wasn't just exactly. a second right. afterthought. <laughs> No, no. Well, speaking of heavy hitters, the letterer, Ray Holloway, this guy actually has quite a few notable works as well. He worked on World's Finest, Batman, and Adventure Comics. So you got two Batman titles and a Superman title. Mm -hmm. That's pretty impressive for the time. Yeah. Actually, yeah, World's Finest was actually Batman and Superman. And so. Oh, really? Oh, that's right. mm -hmm. Yeah, it was both of them. I forget about that. Yeah. So they gave him the big dogs to (laughs) fill in the dialogue. Yeah. And he worked for quite a while at Timely and Atlas. So before he came to DC, Timely slash Atlas, that was, was that Jason clarify this for me timely first then atlas is that right yes i believe so yeah timely atlas and then we all know it now as marvel comics right exactly so he started marvel before it was marvel and worked there for i'm sure quite a few titles on all that time his pen name is really interesting his pen name is sherry gale which is an amalgam of his <laughs> wife and daughter's names yeah, that's why would interesting. you bother with a pen name don't you want to be famous why would you <laughs> Well, you know, maybe you're not sure that that title is going to do well and you don't want your name associated with it. You know, it's kind of like, what's that director's name? Directed that by they use Alan on Smithy. Yeah, Alan Smithy. There. <laughs> the shadow who aids the forces of law and order is in reality Lamont Cranston, wealthy young man about town. Years ago in the Orient, Cranston learned a strange and mysterious secret. The hypnotic power to cloud men's minds so they cannot see him. 
Cranston's friend and companion, the lovely Margot Lane, is the only person who knows to whom the voice of the invisible shadow belongs. Now it's time to talk about the characters. John, what can you tell us about this shadow guy? Well, I don't know much about the shadow. I don't know why you're asking. Yeah, me. right. <laughs> okay. okay. Here we go. <laughs> You know, as recently as maybe two weeks ago, I was having lunch with somebody who didn't know much about the shadow. So this was actually all fresh in my mind. I had to regurgitate this data. <laughs> he, the shadow is an amazing, amazingly rich character that I think most people know him from the radio show. And yeah, the radio that's where show, I was right. first introduced to him. The old yeah. radio <laughs> show broadcast. You would get those little cassettes at like Cracker Barrel. Yeah, and they would absolutely. have like the old radio programs. And the shadow was the one that I would always get my parents to buy. They were awesome. And that's where I was first introduced to him too but i mean but the radio show is actually a watered down version of who the shadow is wait and, uh, okay so he yeah. didn't start in the radio show oh god no oh no 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 okay so, so uh, the shadow had kind of a circuitous route to making their way into circuitous wow. yeah, yeah what the hell is that word was that the word well, of the he, day? it wasn't like a direct like oh it, it was a it was a book and then it was a tv show and then it was a movie kind of thing it really kind of was kind of this weird loop so okay in, yeah so so you talked about the radio shows, but before the shadow had his own radio show, the shadow was just the announcer for the uh, detective story hour, which was just a random, you know, detective story of the week. And they had this kind of mysterious guy and he said, I am the shadow and here's the story. Oh, wow. Huh. And he was played by these guys, Frank Licurdo and Frank Reddick, which oddly enough. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. And first they were doing the detective story hour and then the blue coal radio hour. And then later they even used him for the, the street and Smith love story hour, which is the most bizarre what? thing ever. Yeah. Well, it's just because he was the popular announcer. And after a while, he had that good, deep radio voice, yes, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. then he would like, he would like talk into a glass on the side of his mouth to make that weird little echo. And you can't really tell what, you know, <laughs> that kind of deal. <laughs> and what happened was people were so interested in the shadow. It was like the tail wagging the dog after a while. And people were like, we want to know more about the shadow. And so Street and Smith hired this staff writer named Walter Gibson to start writing novels about the shadow. And so okay, really, so now this is when he really transitioned into pulp, right? Yes. Yeah. So okay. there was not a radio show yet. And so it was created out of whole cloth. There's just the sound of this mysterious voice. And this guy, Walter Gibson, talk about an amazing, just prolific writer over I don't know how many years like 350 pulp novels he wrote 222 wow, of them wow that's a lot wow two novels a week he was cranking out in many cases good cases. lord they can't have been that good I mean, I know you've read some of them, but 280, if he's writing two novels a week, they have to, some of them have to be dogs. They're actually a lot of them really good. It's, really? It's, he's that kind of writer. Yeah. Wow. Were they self-contained stories like a, like a Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew kind of thing where it's one story and it's, you know, mm -hmm. a different story in each book or was it a continuous? Very like, much like that. It was a mythos building, but each one was a separate one. And I talked about the Hitler's Astrologer comic book earlier. You know, mm -hmm. and it would be, you know, the mysterious laughing skull. And it was a story about that. What era of history was this written in? Because I know Pulp started around the 20s or 30s or so, right? Yeah. So this was all like in the 30s to early 30s is when the Pulp started. And they actually, the Pulps ran all the way up until like the early 60s. Oh, some wow. of them ran. Yeah. Wow. With Gibson writing 300, uh, 282 mm. of them. Jeez. Uh, but finally, after seven years of these Pulps being out, that's when he finally got the radio show. Okay. So 1937, they started the radio show. And the first year they grabbed, they wanted to 
go big, and so they brought in Orson Welles oh, that's, to do yeah, the Rise really? of the Shadow. Wow. But wow. he only did it for a year, and then they brought in other greats like Bill Johnstone, and then Brett Morrison did it. Uh, let me ask you this then. You talk about watered-down version. Does that mean like in the pulp books, he was like grittier and nastier and meaner than he was on the radio shows? The attitude that you see in the radio show is is accurate. You know, he's super confident and he's super suave, but he's right. also an executioner. If he knows that yeah. someone has done wrong, he just kills them. Why do you think it is then that Batman became a larger icon in pulp culture than The Shadow did? Batman had a better costume. I think the sh- <laughs> <laughs> False. <laughs> Incorrect. <laughs> the Shadow was a hero for the early 30s, right? So the reason he was so popular is because he knew, look, the Shadow knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men, right? That's said right in the opening. And right. He knows in your heart if you are guilty. And this was during an era of rampant organized crime and police corruption. And the public didn't trust the authorities to put the bad guys behind jail. And here was this hero who came in the night, protected the innocent. He knew if someone was evil or bad and just fucking killed them. And there was no risk of them being him being wrong. He was going to avenge the innocent and punish the guilty with no risk of being incorrect because he knows the hearts of men. When kind of the U.S got a little more touchy-feely, Batman is not killing people. He's just kind of bringing them to justice. And I think if bringing somebody to justice, if you trust that, that's fine. So you're saying that Batman became more palatable to the general social conscious than the shadow was as time moved on in America. And I think you could bring the shadow back today when people are less trustful of the establishment and he would do fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you've got quite a bit of stuff to talk about with the shadow. You know, is there anything else you want to talk about him in particular before we start talking about some of the other characters in the book? Because normally we've gone through like (laughs) 10 different characters in this amount of time. I I will. So there's one key thing before we talk about the rest of his crew. And that is one of the deepest kind of most interesting things about the shadow is if I say, you know, if I say the hero is the shadow, what is his secret identity? You would say Uh, Lamont Cranston. That's right. That's what I'd expect Mm -hmm. you to say. But even that there's a deep reality to that, that really the shadow is a guy named Kent Allard. Oh, what? what? Okay. Kent Allard was a World War, like World War One fighting ace, a pilot that crashed okay. in this mystic Orient. He learned this ability to cloud men's oh. minds. And in fact, he was a bad guy. He was a drug smuggler. And when he nearly died in this plane crash and was saved by these monks, he mm-hmm. was taught these things and said, in exchange for your life, you'll be out there correcting the wrongs that you were creating before this, this injury. So these monks basically turned him around and gave him these powers. And as a penance for the evil he had done in the world, he was to go out and fight that evil. So he came okay. back to New York. He had a odd, odd uh, resemblance to this wealthy young man about town named Lamont Cranston. And he threatened him and saying, listen, I'm going to take your identity. I need your resources and I need oh, you wow. know, your, so your much for being a good guy. Wow. But he's, <laughs> that was he, quick. He, again, remember, he, he does dirt to do good. Uh, and so yeah, Lamont, Cranston, does. <laughs> Lamont Cranston actually welcomed it because he said, I'm tired of, you know, the, all the stodginess. He took his wealth and he started traveling. And Kent Allard assumed the identity of Lamont Cranston to have this kind of access to the, you know, the upper echelon of uh, Manhattan and became the shadow when he was doing dirt in the night. Huh. Well, you know, he did all this work, but he didn't do it all alone, right? I mean, he had yep. a crew of people. Yeah. Uh, tons the first of, people. of which you mentioned Margot, but <laughs> there was a whole crew of people that he either 
I don't know if the right term is worked with. I would say more used because in this issue, he it didn't look like he gave too much of a crap about most of these people. So he took great care of his uh, his agents, as he called them. I'm not yeah. going to say he did in this issue. He bossed them around a lot. This is not the best representation of the entire mythos of the shadow. But yes, in this Fair issue, you're, you're right. So there's the taxi driver, Mosh Revnitz or Shrevi, who is, uh, you know, the the greatest taxi driver that in the world has ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Later, he is made out to be kind of a joke, but I mean, he could drive like nobody's business. He's like Baby Driver in the, in that film. Okay, he, he gets. Does around. he work for Uber uh, now? You got this guy. <laughs> I think it's Lyft. <laughs> Lyft actually, okay. he gets better tips. He must have invented Lyft. That's what happened. Uh, he has Burbank, who is uh, kind of like the guy that runs his underground communication network, and he uh, stationed in the Shadow Sanctum. And that's the guy who like sends messages in the little exactly. pneumatic tubes and yes, stuff. Yes, pneumatic over town. tubes. How thirties yeah. is that? <laughs> 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 and th- he has he has dozens of agents that I wouldn't try to number here but the, the interesting thing the reason I explained how he became the shadow and Ken Allard and all that is he often saves people who are about to die or about to commit suicide he saves them and he basically says I have saved your life it now belongs to me mm. right he prov- yeah he he provides them with uh, resources and funds they no longer you know need for money or anything but if the shadow calls upon you you drop everything and you do it you are his agent because he now owns your life. He's like, you saved my life. He says, no, I've claimed your life. That does uh, begs a little question though. I've got, because earlier on you said that, you know, he took over Lamont Cranston's identity and life, but Lamont Cranston, the real like took his money and went traveling. Did he leave money for the shadow? Cause where does he have these resources? Cause he wasn't rich before this. Where did he get all this money that he's using? No, Lamont Cranston was so wealthy. He has plenty of money. He he took money and took off, but not all of his money. I got you. Yeah, Yeah. Okay. Well, the shadow sounds a little bit like a cult leader. He saves, you know, saves someone's life and then you're in my debt now. It's, yeah, well, but it's the cult of justice. Okay. <laughs> the cult of- if you say so. <laughs> the thrilling adventures of the shadow are on the air. Brought to you each week at this time by your neighborhood blue coal dealer. These dramatizations are designed to demonstrate forcibly to old and young alike that crime does not pay. Let's talk a little bit now about the story of The Shadow, Volume 1, Issue Number 1 from DC 1973. I know John doesn't have anything else to say about this, so I'm just going to start talking a little bit. Uh, to me, this story overall had that noir, old school radio kind of feel in the way it was being told. Like there were little bubbles that popped up here and there that felt like maybe it might have been a radio announcer was giving you yeah, details a about a scene. Right. right. Yeah. That kind of thing. Exactly. Right. Yep. <laughs> Back in the pneumatic tubes of justice or whatever. For coming were. out in the 70s, the the story feels very much like, you know, the 40s. It, it had that yeah, feel. Yeah, it did. Yeah, uh, rightfully so, which is fun. Uh, yeah, it did. definitely had an old school feel. I mean, I didn't listen to a lot of, you know, pulp radio growing up, but just from, you know, interpretations on TV, this, this definitely had kind of a, even felt a little dated sure. for the 70s to me. Yeah. It, it, it really did. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Can you imagine being a kid? You go to the comic book store or maybe your grocery store with a spinner rack or something. You pick this up and it looks really cool. The cover is the, awesome. The cover is amazing. I yes. loved that cover. And you pick that up and then you start reading it. Do you think that the style of story might have pulled a young child out 
of the book as far as they might not have liked it as much. It pulled a 37-year-old adult out of it a little bit, too. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jason, don't be talking shit about the shadow. <laughs> <laughs> you started it. You even said that this wasn't the best representation. No, but you, you're right. This For a comic book, the, the audience for comics were, you know, you know, preteens or whatever. This is a very, you know, guys in suits hanging out in a country club and, you know, what's going on in the shadows kind of thing. It doesn't have the whiz bang effect that a lot of comic books do, which again, would, wouldn't it do so much better modern? I mean, there are modern interpretations of the shadow, but it's not getting its due. Like I think it really could in a modern, you know, exposure because- I think mm-hmm. you're right. I mean, I think somebody like an image, I think that company could do really well with a character like this. I don't think they'll ever get the licensing, but I, I could see somebody like image boom studios, maybe uh, dark horse. One of those guys. I mean, I know dark horse had their shot a little bit. You talked about earlier. That's but, right. Yeah. I mean, I could see one of those studios doing well, but they would have to let go of what they've seen done in the comic books in the past. And they would have to, somebody would have to come on. Like maybe, I don't know a shadow expert, like somebody yeah. we know <laughs> would have to come on and direct them more toward the pulp novels possibly so that they could get that darker tone as opposed to what they like me everybody thinks the shadow started in the radio program so that's what we know yeah, not the case yeah so, so th- this episode jason your defense it was very radio showy it wasn't mm-hmm. purely based on the radio show it was clearly some stuff out of the pulps but like his auto gyro that weird helicopter right. thing that he flies in that's straight mm-hmm. out of uh the pulps and the radio mm-hmm. shows um but he wasn't as dark as he historically was in later, even later iterations of the comic book, a revelation of him, or look at the 94 Alec Baldwin film when he's, mm-hmm, he's right. nice and dark and brooding and evil. Evil is kind of a stretch, but he certainly has no real human attachment. The problem that they did with it there in this whole run, I think of DC shadow is they were, they didn't bother bringing him in modern times. They were just recreating the 40s shadow. Mm-hmm, uh, right. And later versions, they brought him into modern times for hit or miss success, but uh, he 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 can live well in any time. And this, they didn't bring him in the seven days. They left him in the in the thirties, and that's probably what lost Jason a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think if you took this character and maybe you took his Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. but married him a little bit more with like a Punisher vibe, he would do yeah. well in the modern era. Not necessarily Punisher vibe in you know badass Jason Bourne kind of breaking everybody down fight mm-hmm. style wise, but you know at least in the dark and menacing and tortured soul kind of thing. I mean, I don't, he doesn't come across as a tortured soul, but that might play well if they could figure out a way to keep that true to the original character. More of a kind of a dark, you know, assassin type that shows up out of the shadows, of course, or like um, maybe even a grittier Sherlock Holmes type character. You really picked up on the the detective aspect of it there, Jason. You say, you know, a gritty Sherlock Holmes. And the, uh, even in this book, he's solving mysteries and he's figuring things out and deducing problems. Um, Mm -hmm. And because he was this great detective, again, inspiring characters like Batman, who were great detectives in their own right, but became superheroes. Well, and, you know, I want to talk a little bit about that, because in this book, one thing that comes across very early on in the pages is he is super confident. I mean, oh, this yeah. guy, no question, yeah. like he knows his business. He knows what and he's got that kind of like, I'm not going to divulge everything I know to the reader or to my compatriots. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you'll just everything will work out fine. I know what I'm doing kind of feel to 
to him. Right. Which, Everything is coming into focus. I will let you know as soon as you need to know kind of thing. Yeah, right. and I kind of didn't like that because it made me an outsider to the story a little bit. Yeah, kind of Sherlock Holmesy. It's like, oh, I've deduced the problem, but it does explain how he knows it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it, the, is confidence a superpower he has? <laughs> it, he's super cocky. No. He's, <laughs> Well, his confidence is well-earned. I mean, he knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. A lot of that was, again, I, I claim this is, uh, and again, I don't know how many more shadow books you're going to humor me with over the course of the run of this oh, podcast. Oh, this is it. No, but, this is it, man. <laughs> yeah. But there, again, are much, much deeper, darker, more interesting versions of the shadow out there, other number ones even, that don't give you that kind of like, I know all the secrets, and really you are in on the joke all the time with the shadow, and you see what mm-hmm. he's thinking and what he's doing. And those are the ones, uh, you know, the confidence is fine. But the other thing, that Jason, you picked up on that you said, hey, he could be this guy that comes out of the shadows, which no pun intended. But that's kind of the, that's one of the coolest things about this character uh, that even shows up here is when you hear that laugh, you don't see him, right. you know he's there, you know it's your ass. There's nothing you can yeah. do about it. If he's there to, to off you, he's going to do it. He's, you're not going to get away. So that laugh almost seemed like it was kind of a power. I mean, just the way they drew it on the page or the way that people reacted to it. Does it echo throughout the city? You're exactly right. You know, I hadn't thought of it like that, but that is the case when people kind of know they don't know what the shadow looks like at all, but they have a reputation and they think he's a myth. But when you hear that laugh, it starts to, you know, instill fear and you're like, oh, shit, it's real. Oh, my goodness. You know, that's (laughs) interesting because, you know, we've been talking a lot about the comparisons between the shadow and the Batman. Batman doesn't have that precursor to his arrival. He just shows up. He just shows up or maybe a battering. Yeah, battering somebody to a wall or something like that. But there's no like, oh, my God, it's the Batman because of a precursor to his arrival. There's no like that creepy laugh that the shadow does. I wonder to me, that kind of makes him a little bit more menacing. Maybe that's why, you know, because, you know, he's going to kill people first off. You right. Know, you know, he's there. There's no question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly right. I wish that they had explained the relationships of the characters on his crew a little bit more as well as the characters that were in the book, like the bank, uh, the bank guy who ends up being the bad guy at the end and everything. Sure. Yeah. There's no mm-hmm. preamble to how they know each other or anything. Just I'm going to see my contact on Wall Street and yeah. Here's this guy. And you're like, OK, foreshadowing, you know, something's going to happen here. But I, I couldn't agree more here. And this is this is more of me wanting to pull Jason into the world of the shadow. But <laughs> this this DC number one was it felt very much like fan service. It was like, hey, all you shadow fans, mm-hmm. DC got the license. Here you go. Here's a story continuing the mythos that you know so well. And it right. doesn't introduce you to anything if you didn't already know it. Right. Well, I, I agree with you. And and I read there was a letter from the writer at the end of the book where mm-hmm. he talks right. about being visited by the shadow. Right. And that, yeah. you know, referenced the shadow as an inspiration to Batman. And of course, we know that Denny O'Neill was writing Batman at the time. And mm-hmm. and it just seemed it was kind of an interesting little story of how he got the idea of writing the shadow. But I do agree that it also felt a little bit of fan service or maybe just wanting to delve a little bit more into Batman, but from a different perspective. Um, but that that was an interesting little touch to have that letter at the end. You don't see a whole lot of that in modern comics. It was almost like they, they took a book and tried to turn it into a, a like a manuscript for a mm-hmm. film or something like that, and then did that poorly. 
Yeah, they left out all the backstory, the exposition. They're like, we need to get to the action. Uh, and the problem is, if you don't know those characters in the back end, you don't know, uh, you know, this, if this guy shows up, you don't go, oh, there he is. It's like, who the hell is this? Well, because like, you know, you were talking about Shrevy, the taxi cab, the yeah. best taxi cab driver. Mm-hmm. I had no idea why this guy kept driving his damn cab for him. Right. Because yep. in all the situations that happen, like he sees his buddy getting beat to death and kidnapped and he drives back. Oh, Mr. Shadow, I saw him, but I couldn't help him because they started shooting. I'm like, I would have been out of there, man. That was it. But yeah. no, he keeps, he's so loyal to him and everything. And there's no reason as mm-hmm. to why that loyalty exists between all of his crew and himself. And I, I wish that they had done something to at least show that. But I guess because this was not, um this was not a continuation story. Like it wasn't going to go mm, the same yeah. story in issue two, three, four, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Maybe they felt like they just had to tell the meat of the crime, I guess. I don't really know. I just had an epiphany. So, Okay. So all this time, Drawn and Paneled has been you showing me comics through a different lens Mm -hmm. uh, that Mm -hmm. that I don't know. But here I'm now looking at the shadow in a way that I never looked at it before. Something I thought I had. You had nothing you could tell me that I didn't know. However, (laughs) I only ever read this DC number one. By the way, this is the first book you've asked me to read that I had already read many times before. But (laughs) this is I never thought about I never read this DC shadow number one without thinking about all of the background that I already knew. Cause I knew the pulps. I knew the radio shows. I knew future uh, versions of the, of the comic book. I never looked at it from the eyes of someone who had no, nothing invested in the shadow already, um, mm-hmm. which is why it already felt a little bit um, kind of muted to me in terms of it's not as dramatic as a shadow can be, but I can see how mm-hmm. it isn't the best introduction to the shadow at all, because it's not an introdu- introduction in any form. It's a jump in the middle of it, which is where mm-hmm. it was but it's not great for a first time reader. Yeah. And it's a shame because like we've talked about, the shadow has such a great history and there's Mm -hmm. such great work that can be done there. I wish that this book could have lived up to that bar so to speak, but you know, it's okay because at least we did get to talk about something on drawn and paneled that John knows backwards and forwards and upside down and in the shadows. Yeah. It's all about John. (laughs) (laughs) You're the ones who are trapped, not I. (laughs) Some of this room inch by inch, we'll find you, and when we do... When you do, all you'll find is the law. The law? Yes, Doctor. A riot squad. All for you. And would you believe it? They're on their way here right now. If anything in this episode has piqued your interest, we put links in the show notes you can click on to find out more. Catch up on past shows and be alerted every week when a new one drops by subscribing to us wherever you get your podcast. Also, if you're enjoying what we do, help us keep the lights on by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash genxgrownup. And we love to hear from our podcast listeners, so please write to us at podcast at drawnandpanel.com. And that will wrap it up for this edition of the Drawn and Paneled Back Issue Podcast. Oh, it's over? Oh, it's no. over. Yes, well, it I is. I have so much more to say about the shadow, though. We well, know. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank all of our patrons over on patreon.com slash genxgrownup. That includes Marcus Agel, Dana, Titu, Stubaka, Slomo, Thomas, Corey, Jessica, Will, and Stian. Thank you guys so much for sending in just a couple of bucks a month really helps us a lot with all the tools we have to buy the programs we use to record these podcasts and our YouTube mm-hmm. channel. You should definitely go out and check out Gen X grown up on YouTube. It's a lot of fun. Our podcast, our website, Gen X grown up.com, 
which has a whole new review series from Jason all about the comic books that week that he's been reading. Really cool and awesome stuff out there. So we thank you patrons for really helping us out keeping the lights on here at Drawn and Panel. Oh, they are awesome people. Yes, thank you. Fantastic human beings. And with that, we will see you guys in two weeks with another back issue edition, but we will be back next week with our regular edition of our podcast. Jason, thank you so much for being here. No, thank you. And John, I'm afraid to let you say anything else or this ending is going to go on for another 40 <laughs> minutes. <but laughs> thank you as well for being here with us today. Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm back to my alter ego. Yes, thank you for having me. <laughs> and thank you for choosing this book. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And we will see See you guys next time. See everybody later. Bye-bye now. Gen X Grown Up is a member of the Evergreen Podcast family. Learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're also an affiliate of the Geeks Worldwide Radio Network. You can check them out at the GWW.com. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep. Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. <laughs> <laughs> no, right.